0: Well good morning everyone. Good morning. Delighted to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us. I want to tell you about a guy by the name of Poon Lim. And here's a picture of Poon Lim. Uh, he was stranded at sea for 133 days uh, beginning on November the something 1942. He was on a merchant, British merchant ship traveling through the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and that ship was sunk by a German U-boat. Um, He was able to manage to get a hold of this raft. He was the only survivor from that ship. He was able to get a hold of this raft, and there were some provisions on this raft, and so he lived on this raft. After his provisions started running out, and he realized there was no help that was coming, he had to figure out a different way to feed himself and to get water, and so he caught rain, um, and that's what he drank. And then he also began catching fish. I'm not sure exactly how he did that, but he caught fish, and he was, um, I guess, really into sushi, because that's how he ate them. Um, And then... uh, he let some of the fish guts set out, and then birds would try to land on his raft, and he would catch the birds, and then he used the birds to catch the sharks that were swimming around his raft, and so um, he would eat the sharks, and so this went on for 133 days. He had th- many opportunities actually to be rescued through this. Um, on one occasion, a German U-boat popped up out of the water and looked at him, and then went back down under the water, and he never saw them again. They just figured, you know, I guess you're just, this is where you're at. Um, and then also, a, an American uh, merchant ship actually rode by him, and and did not rescue him. Um, on another occasion, uh, he was off the coast of America, and a, uh, a plane that was doing surveillance flew out over him, circled around him, and he never heard anything from anybody about that. It wasn't until he drifted down to South America off the coast of Brazil and got about five, to eight miles, something like that. You can Google the story, Poon Lim, um, that he was actually rescued by a fishing vessel. Uh, took him inshore he went back he was transported back to I'm not sure if he went I guess he had to go by boat but anyhow he went from Brazil back to I wouldn't want to get on a boat went from Brazil back to Britain where he was then awarded uh, some sort of a medal or an honor uh, for his hardiness uh, uh, um, and then he uh, eventually immigrated to the U.S. where he died at the age of 73 in 1991 again 133 days out at sea can you imagine being this guy I mean, you see these planes circling overhead. You think, finally, this is it. I'm going to be rescued and then nothing happens. You talk about being forgotten. I mean, Poon Lin was feeling forgotten. And so that's really our topic today is we're going to see a guy uh, by the name of Joseph who we've been looking at over the last several weeks who just, I'm sure, had moments in his life where he just felt like, I think this is finally where things are going to start turning around for me, and then it doesn't. Um, Our text comes from Genesis chapter 40. Uh, Again, we've been looking at the life of the great man of God, uh, Joseph. He was one of 12 sons of Jacob. Um, His brothers, at the age of 17, sold him into slavery, went home and told their dad that, oh, by the way, um, our, our our youngest brother, Joseph, our second, the youngest brother Joseph was actually mauled by some wild animals. He'd eaten by those wild animals. Uh, he was then traded on the auction blocks at 17 years of age in Egypt um, to the house of Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of the guard. That is, he was the, uh, the head of the uh, secret service for the Pharaoh. And so he lived in the house of Potiphar for a couple of years until Potiphar's wife comes along and she wants she gets an eye for Joseph. And Joseph won't have anything to do with her. And so she makes up a story about how Joseph had tried to uh, do some funny business with her. Joseph ends up landing in jail wrongly, unjustly. And so that's where we find him about nine years into a 10 to 11 year prison sentence, uh, depending on which scholar you're reading. So he's been in prison for a long time. There's not a lot of stories about Joseph. Actually, there's no No stories about Joseph's life in prison. I'm sure he had lots of stories he could have told. uh, But this is the one and only story because it advances uh, the narrative of what happens in Joseph's life. So again, our text comes from Genesis chapter 40. If you would, let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 40. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 15 and verse 23. This is where Joseph uh, interprets the dream of the cupbearer. Let's read together. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I want to just kind of go back to the beginning of this chapter and work our way toward this kind of conclusion of this particular part of the story of what happens to Joseph. So let's go back to verse 1. Um, it writes sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. So again, Joseph is in prison. He's been in prison for nine years, unfairly, unjustly. There, um, and these two men come to Joseph, and he has to take care of them. It says that there, one of them is a cupbearer, and one of them is a chief baker. Let's talk about the cupbearer first. The cupbearer was a person who tasted Pharaoh's drinks before those drinks would get to the Pharaoh's table. So, if the Pharaoh was going to have some wine, or the Pharaoh was going to have some water, or he's going to have some juice, or whatever it was, the Pharaoh was drinking that day, his cupbearer would take a sip of it and then give it a little bit. And if the cupbearer didn't die, because that was kind of their security measure back then, then they knew that it was okay for the Pharaoh to eat, right? They didn't have a way to test things. They didn't have chemical processes. They just, hey, why don't you take a drink of this? But not only was he... Um, in charge of a security measure for the Pharaoh with regard to what he would drink, but he was also in charge of the quality of those things that would reach his table. So the cupbearer was a part of the, the, the royal court of the Pharaoh. He was a man who the Pharaoh trusted um, completely. Um, And so this guy would have also been in charge of the Pharaoh's vineyards. He would have been in charge of all the wine and that sort of stuff that was brought into the house. So he was not only a security measure, but he was also quality control. Now there's this other guy named uh, the chief baker. Now the chief baker was very similar to the cupbearer in the sense that the chief baker would taste all the food that the Pharaoh was going to eat. So he would taste all the fruit. He would taste all the desserts. He would taste all all the meals and the meat. Everything that landed on the Pharaoh's plate. And again, if it didn't kill the guy, if he seemed okay, then they would send it on to the Pharaoh. So again, it was a security measure, but it was also a way to do quality control. So both of these guys, you can kind of see their, their, area of operation, it dealt with the things that the Pharaoh was going to consume, what it was that was going to land on his table. Now, before we go on, there's one more interesting detail. It says in verse 2 that Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. The Hebrew word that's translated there as officers is the word saris, which means elsewhere in the Old Testament is translated as eunuchs. So, these two guys had no children. They were probably not married. They were simply servants in the king's court, and they had been groomed for this from childhood." Now, there's a problem, and the problem it says in verse 1, back to verse 1, is that these two men committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. You say, well, what was the offense? Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly spell out what that offense was. We might imagine, though, that again, giving their area of oversight, that the Pharaoh had eaten something and the Pharaoh had drank something, doesn't know which it was yet, they're going to get to the bottom of that, but that he'd eaten or drank something that made him sick. Uh, Perhaps it made him violently sick. Uh, We're not sure exactly what that was. But in any case, uh, these two guys are being eyeballed. They're being fingered as the culprits for why the pharaoh got sick. And so they're going to do an investigation. Remember Potiphar, he's the head of the Secret Service. These two guys would have fallen under Potiphar's uh, supervision. Um, They are part of the security measures that would do with the pharaoh. And so Potiphar was going to look into this. It says in verse 3 that they were put in custody in the house of the captain of the guard who is Potiphar. You can imagine that these fellows were concerned. They had seen people go into this prison before. They had seen people get thrown into this dungeon before. And things usually did not go well for that person. Verse 4, the captain of the guard, who was Potiphar, appointed Joseph to be with them. That is to tend to the cupbearer and to the baker, to tend to their needs. Remember, these are high-ranking officials, people that the Pharaoh trusts implicitly. Uh, One of them has done something wrong. And they're going to do an investigation. They're going to find out. Probably by having other people taste test the food that the Pharaoh had eaten that day. Uh, they're going to find out which of these two dudes is responsible for what happened to him. Um, and so, uh, because one of them is going to be, well, you would think, one of them is going to be set back free, and he's going to return to his position uh, in the Pharaoh's court. And so Potiphar wants to make sure that he takes care of both of them because one of them is innocent. You say, Gordon, I thought Potiphar was angry with Joseph. You know, for that thing that happened with Potiphar's wife, you know, where the Bible said that he threw him in jail because of it. Um, Well, after Potiphar hears the accusation that his wife makes, it says in Genesis chapter 39, and verse 19, I, I pointed this out last week, that Potiphar's anger was kindled. Now, I assume that that meant that toward Joseph. However, when you look at how Joseph is sent to a prison that Potiphar has direct oversight of, it begins to make me wonder if maybe Potiphar was doing the very best that he could to give Joseph the very best outcome that he could Um, Nevertheless, Psalm chapter 105, and verse 18, we mentioned this last week, talks about Joseph's condition while he was in that prison. It says that he had fetters, that is, shackles that were placed on his ankles. You can imagine those were not comfortable. They weren't sized to fit. Um, He also had a collar of iron around his neck that he walked around with. I mean, there were some things that just went along with being in that prison. It was not a pretty place for him to be. All right, let's move on. Verse 5. One night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. So Joseph walks in the next morning. These two guys are just waking up from their dreams and would imagine that they were very vivid dreams. And Joseph notices that there's something different about them. It says in verse verse six he noticed that they were troubled. He can see it on their face. These two guys are just distraught. Something's going on. Something's happened during the night. Joseph doesn't know what it is, so he inquires about it. Verse 7, he asks Pharaoh's officers who are with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they reply, verse 8, the reason why we're not feeling really good, the reason why we're both kind of bummed out, verse 8, is because we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret our dreams. You say, well, I mean, Nobody's interpreting my dreams, right? I, I hadn't gone and met with uh, the Sigmund Freud lately to tell me what it was that my dream was wrong with it. So you know, we don't do that in our day. But in Egypt, going and having your dreams interpreted was a big part of life. Because in the ancient Near East, dreams were regarded as a way that the spiritual world communicated with the material world. So if you wanted God to talk to you, he would talk to you. One of the mediums that they believed was through your dreams. God would give you a dream, you could consider what that dream meant, and knew that that was how the spiritual world was communicating with the material world. And so because of this, the Egyptians had professional dream interpreters. I mean, these dream interpreters or dream doctors, as I like to call them, had books that they had written and research that had been done and they had taken dreams that somebody had dreamed and then they followed them over the course of their life and saw how perhaps some of those symbols in their dream had worked out. And by figuring out what, how those symbols in the dream worked out in reality, they could then apply those same principles of what that symbol meant to your situation. And so they would use these books, these volumes of books, these encyclopedias of books of dreams that had been recorded and interpreted or thought to be interpreted, and they would just barely go to the book, and they would hear the dream that you had and the symbols that were in your dream, and they would say, well, this is what those symbols meant over here. This is what this must mean for you. So they made a real science out of it. And these two guys, the cupbearer and the chief baker, didn't have anybody to come and interpret their dream for them. The spiritual world had just talked to them, and nobody in the spiritual world would you know, nobody in in the material world could explain to them what it was that they had just heard. So they're kind of bummed out. They were bummed out. Anyway, they were bummed out. Well, (laughs) along comes Joseph, and he sees this. He picks up on it, how these guys are feeling. He asks, why are your faces so downcast? And they said, we have these vivid dreams, but we don't have a way to interpret them. And Joseph says to them, "Look, hey, look, my God is the interpreter of dreams. That's the God that I serve. I've had dreams myself. He's given me dreams, and he told me what those dreams meant. And uh, he's, 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 the God, he's the dream doctor. So let's hear it. Let's hear what you have to say. Uh, now, in the interest of time, I'm just going to paraphrase what happens next. The cupbearer goes first. He says, in my dream, I saw a vine that had three branches. There were grapes that appeared on the branches. I looked down in my hand. There was the cup. It was the cup of Pharaoh. I took the, dream, or the grapes. I squished the grapes into the cup, and then I handed the cup to Pharaoh. And that was my dream. And Joseph, without any hesitation, without any going off to consult somebody, or I'll get back to you later this week, Joseph just immediately says, Well, here's the meaning of your dream. He says, verse 12, uh, the three branches are three days. Verse 13, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That means he's going to listen to your case, he's going to consider your situation and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. In other words, in three days, the Pharaoh is going to take up your case, and when he does, things are going to go really well for you. You You're going to be restored, the cupbearer, back to your position in Pharaoh's court. Going to get your old job back. Skip forward to verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation for the cupbearer was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Kind of like, hey, look, you did a really great job with that guy's dream. Perhaps maybe you can do something similar for me, and it'll come out really good for me, just like it did for him. He said, there were three, cap- three cake baskets on my head, stacked up one on top of the other, verse 17. And in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the problem was the birds were eating it out of the basket. Verse 18, so Joseph answered him again immediately without any consultation, without any hesitation about what this thing meant. He said, this is the interpretation. The three da- baskets are also three days, just like with a cupbearer's dream. However, the outcome for you is going to be markedly different. Verse, four, verse 19, because in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head, but on your case he's going to take your head from you. <laughs> uh, a little bit of Bible humor there. But in any case, he will hang your headless body on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh. And this was a way to increase the indignity of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of executing this person. Not only are we going to take your head off from you, but we're also going to impale it on a pole outside and the birds are going to come, come away and peck at it. I'll let you imagine that for yourself. And this is what happened. On the third day, verse 20, Which was Pharaoh's birthday. This wasn't literally his birthday, the day that he came out into the world. This was the day that he became Pharaoh. Uh, Because in the Egyptian uh, understanding of things, the day that the Pharaoh became Pharaoh, like the day of his inauguration, was the day that he became a god. They believed that the Egyptian pharaohs were God incarnate. So that the Pharaoh that you serve, the Pharaoh that you represent, it was just a way to elevate the position of that person, really. Um, But in any case, they believed that... So they would look at his birthday as the day that he became a god, the day of his inauguration. It was very common um, in the Egyptian world for the Pharaoh on his birthday, the day of his inauguration, years later, um, every year, to pardon people, uh, to show mercy, to show clemency uh, to individuals. And so that's what happens here. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, verse 20, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker. Verse 21, and the verdict was he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, verse 22, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted it to them. So, the cupbearer is restored, the baker is relieved of his duties. But there's one more detail, and that's what we read at the beginning, and this is the business of Joseph's request for the cupbearer to put in a good word for Joseph. Joseph makes a request, will you please put in a good word for Pharaoh? Um, He says, verse 14, back to verse 14, he says, Only remember me, this is after he had just interpreted the cupbearer's dream, Only remember me, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this unfair predicament that I find myself in. But the text concludes, and the Bible writer wants to make it very clear to you and to I and to all the readers who will come after, that Joseph was forgotten, that the cupbearer did not tell Pharaoh what had happened. He says in verse 23, yet nevertheless, after all of this, after Joseph had fed this guy, brought warm blankets perhaps washed his feet, tended to all of his needs, cared for him in, in all kinds of ways. After all of that, nevertheless, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, the text says, but forgot him. That's a literary device that we see in the Hebrew language where it's repeating the same thing uh, again for the point, for, as a point of emphasis. He says he did not remember um, Joseph but forgot him stating the same thing twice as a point of emphasis to you and me the bible writer wants us to know that joseph was forgotten all right well that's our text for today our story and the episode of the life of joseph and so that means it's time for us to transition and ask the question that we ask every week around here how's everybody doing today Ha, okay, just catching you. What difference does this make to my life? You say, well, yeah, Gordon, you know, I get that Joseph got forgotten. It seems that to be an ongoing theme in Joseph's life, just one raw deal after another, just one injustice after another. The poor guy can't seem to catch a break. But I don't live in Egypt, and I don't have any dream books that I've been reading lately to interpret my dreams. I mean, what has any of this got to do with me? What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, First of all, I want to point out that though Joseph appears to have been forgotten by men, he was not forgotten by God. And the text is very clear also in in leading us to that conclusion. Look back at Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. This is when Joseph is first thrown into jail. Unjustly, Potiphar's wife had made these accusations. None of the accusations are true. Nevertheless, he gets slapped on with the collar of iron, uh, the fetters on his ankles, and Joseph is there in prison. But the Bible records, Genesis 39, verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then again, skip on down to verse 23, Genesis 39, verse 23, The keeper of the prison made no attention, paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. So the Bible writer wants to make sure that we know that despite Joseph's bad run of luck, that despite the injustices, and the unfairness of Joseph's situation that God nevertheless was indeed with Joseph. Joseph may have been forgotten by men. This cupbearer may have forgotten him. His best friend Potiphar may have abandoned him. His, five, his 12, 11, whatever brothers, all the brothers he got, they had, perhaps, they had completely forgotten about Joseph. All those people may have forgotten about Joseph, but Joseph was not forgotten by God. You know, some of us can really relate to this, right? We went through a season where we lost a job. And our world was in a tailspin. And did we get a call from any of our coworkers that we had vacationed with, traveled with, worked alongside for a decade or more? Did any of them call to check in and see how I, me, me and my family were doing? Others of us have been through a prolonged illness where our recovery seemed to drag on for quite a while. And at first, people would call, and at first, people would bring meals by, and it was really kind, and it was really nice, and it was very hospitable and generous of them to do. But after a couple of weeks, you know, as people kind of got back into their routines and that sort of thing, left us feeling kind of alone, perhaps feeling forgotten. Others of us have left, felt left out at school. We went through a difficult season where our friendship base was really reshuffling, and we weren't sure, sure where we fit into the mix of all of our friends. And that friend that we used to FaceTime with, we're not hearing from so much anymore. And all of this has left us feeling confused and perhaps a bit forgotten. Others of us have done our best to show kindness and generosity to a family member that we've been over backwards for. We've tried to help out their situation. We've watched their kids. We've helped pay some of their bills. We've let them cry on our shoulders. But now they act like we never did anything. There's no thank you. There's no gratitude. It's like it all just was done and expected of us. Others of us have lost someone really close to us, perhaps a parent or a spouse. And at first people were really kind and they were really thoughtful and they came out to the funeral and they sent cards and they sent flowers. But now it's been several months and they've all gone back to their lives and we're still grieving. Feeling forgotten is a terrible feeling. I imagine Joseph sitting in a jail cell had nights like this, nights where he thought, you know, I wonder if my brothers ever think about me. Do you think Joseph ever asked that question? I'm sure he did. I wonder if they ever think about it. I wonder if they ever I wonder if they feel sorry for what they did. Do you suppose that at night they're sitting up and praying for me? Do you think maybe they even went searching for me? I imagine Joseph had feelings like that, feelings of being forgotten. But again, the text says that God had not forgotten him, that God still had Joseph's best interest in mind. And that sustained Joseph, it was a source of strength for Joseph that though he had been forgotten by men, and the Bible makes that clear, he had not been forgotten by God. You say, Gordon, i got a question. You know, I've I've heard this kind of thing before. I've heard that God is always with us. And I don't doubt Jesus when he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I believe in that deep in my heart. And I know that he's with me. And I've seen him be with me before. But here's my question. What is God up to? I mean, why is he putting me in the situation that he's putting me in? What is, what is the explanation? Because it's easy to look back at Joseph's life and how he's been forgotten when we know the rest of the story. But I don't know the rest of my story. I haven't lived out the rest of my story yet. I'm maybe still sitting in the dungeon right now, or at least it feels like it. So what's God up to? How do we understand all of this? You know that's a really great question. Y'all ask very good questions, by the way. I appreciate that. Um, Let's see if we can answer that one. With the time that I have remaining, um, I want to show you in Scripture two principles of perhaps. And this is just a perhaps. This is not a cross-the-board, universal explanation of what God is doing. Please don't take it that way. But this is a principle from Scripture that two principles from Scripture that teach us perhaps what god sometimes is doing when we find ourselves alone when we find ourselves feeling forgotten by men the first principle is this is that god never bestows great responsibility on a man or a woman until he first tests them in small things god never bestows great responsibility on a man or woman until he first tests them in the small things. If you look at the life of Joseph and this episode that we're looking at here today, we see Joseph tending to the needs of these two men. I mean, he's doing a great job of it, too. Remember, he's, he's, he's feeding them. He's helping them with their laundry. He's helping them with baths and all those sorts of things that he would have, you know, general life stuff. And Joseph is seeing to all of that. And it would have been very easy for Joseph, having been given this assignment, to just gripe about it. complain about it. Who are these guys to me? I mean, I'm stuck here in this prison, and I don't know why I'm stuck here in this prison, and and, and it's not right that I'm here in this prison, and then i am sent these two people, and I'm supposed to be responsible for them. I mean, what do I care what happens to these two guys? He could have griped about it. He could have responded with indifference. But what we see in the text is that Joseph was attuned to how they were feeling. I mean, he was not only going about the actions of taking care of them, but he actually cared for them, such that when he walked into the room, he could see the countenance on their face had changed. it's like, what's going on with you guys? He actually showed, demonstrated that he cared. Um, So we see that Joseph's faithfulness in this trivial responsibility ends up being directly related to, please don't miss this, that Joseph's faithfulness in this trivial responsibility is directly related to his getting promoted to the awesome responsibility of being the prime minister of Egypt. Because as the story goes, the cupbearer goes back, he forgets about Joseph until two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. I knew this guy once in prison, and he interpreted my dream. Maybe, Pharaoh, he can do the same for you. And that's how Joseph ends up being elevated to being the prime minister of Egypt. Things are set in motion. But again, Joseph's faithfulness in this trivial responsibility was directly related to his getting promoted to the awesome responsibility of becoming the prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth. Jesus talks about this, Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. Let me read that for you. He said, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. God anticipates this. Faithful in little, God says, I know there's a principle here that you can be, you'll be faithful with much. And he said, here's the other side of that coin. He says, one who is dishonest in very little, God predicts, I know how it's going to go. If they're ever given much, they'll be dishonest with much. In other words, God decides who he can trust with big responsibilities by watching how they handle little responsibilities. God says, look, if I can trust you to be honest If I can trust you to be conscientious with how you do your homework and how you act on the job and how you take care of the boss's equipment, if I can trust you with the little stuff in life, um, then I know that I can trust you with bigger responsibilities. Friends, people who are generals and colonels and admirals in this world, you can count on it. Every single one of them was at one time a faithful private. Principle number one is God never bestows great responsibility on a man or woman until he first tests them in the small things. And if we're feeling forgotten and if we're feeling passed over in the small things, please know that this is how God works. He starts us small to test us, to see how we'll do. And then if we are faithful like Joseph in the trivial things, and the small things, God will graduate us up the line. That's what God is doing. It may leave us feeling forgotten right now, but friends, we are not forgotten by God. It's all part of how it works. I had a student several years ago who um, found out that we had a youth pastor position open here at Hebron, one of my students that I teach uh, at the school where I teach. And He found out about it and called me and said, Hey, look, I'm turning in my application. I want for you to take a look at it. I'd love to be able to uh, come on staff with you guys. Um, So he sent his application in, and I dismissed it immediately. Didn't even consider it. Say, Well, why did you not even consider it? Well, because he was notorious for turning his stuff in late. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. right. And I'm thinking, you know, do I want somebody working here at the church? And do we want somebody serving us and our kids here at the church who maybe can't get times out to parents and won't send off to make reservations for the different retreats that they're going on? You know, Do we want somebody that's going to be that kind of a headache for us around here? Because, I mean, if you can't handle the little things, if you can't turn in a two-page paper on the deity of Christ on time, then how do I know that you're going to show up on time for events that are going on here where bigger things are happening. You know, the larger, larger responsibilities, this is my Yoda statement, okay? I thought about this one for a while, too, so y'all just have to just sit with it for a little bit, let it simmer, okay? Larger responsibilities does not responsible a person make. <laughs> Very Yoda-esque, wasn't it? Larger, think about that, larger responsibilities does not responsible a person make. Isn't that what we want in life? Well, I, wait till they give me such and such, and then I will. Then I'll show up. Then they can, then I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll be producing all over the place, right? Give me more, let me do more. But friends, larger responsibilities does not responsible a person make. And this is what Jesus is pointing out, that if God were to give a, bigger, a person bigger responsibilities, who was proven irresponsible in the little things, then he would just be increasing the magnitude of their failure and the potential disgrace that they might bring upon the cause of Christ. And so in God's economy, God decides who gets promoted on the basis of how well we do with the small jobs of life. Perhaps in your situation, Perhaps, again, this is not universal, don't apply it everywhere, but perhaps that's what God is doing. Principle number one. Um, And then I add, let's not evaluate God. Human beings are terrible about doing this. Let's not evaluate God on the basis of how the world is treating us. Rather, let us evaluate ourselves ourselves. On the basis of our faithfulness to the responsibilities that God has set before us. Principle number two, and this is a really good one. I like this one. Here comes, here it comes. Number two. This is hope. Ready? Here it comes. Number two. If you do, or if you and I do prove ourselves faithful, God will promote us. Isn't that neat? If you and I prove ourselves faithful, what we see in Scripture is that God will promote us. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 or you can just follow along on the screen. And in Matthew 25 we discover the parable of the talents. Perhaps you're familiar with this parable where there's a master and he has has some money and he gives ten talents to one servant. He gives five talents to another servant and one talent to another. The first two guys the one he gives ten to, the guy he gives five to while the master's away he tells them do something with this. And the two um, double the money. Uh, Ten talents doubles it, five talents doubles it. Uh, but the one-talent guy, he digs a, a hole in the ground and goes and buries it. When the master comes home, he's delighted with servant number one and servant number two because they've taken what he entrusted them with. They were faithful with it. They doubled it. They multiplied it. But, of course, the third he's not so thrilled with. Listen to what he says to the first two. This proves our principle here that if you, do, if you and I do prove ourselves faithful, God will promote us. Look at Matthew 25 and verse 23. Here's what the master says to the first two servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and as a result, I will set you over much. Hmm. Did you hear that? Because you were faithful over little, as a result of that, I will set you over much. God says, I will do this. I'm not just going to watch you sit out there and be faithful and flounder forever your faithfulness will result in good things and blessings from God. God is saying to people that he puts over <clears throat> God is saying to the people that he puts over little things that if they prove themselves faithful in the little that he is delighted and that he will promote them to bigger things. Think about Joshua from the Old Testament. Joshua was a faithful servant to Moses for 40 years out in the desert. Never got promoted for 40 years. Moses was in charge. Joshua faithfully did whatever it was that Moses needed, stood by his side, served him faithfully. And as a result, though, of that, God allowed Joshua to be promoted to be the one that would lead the Israelites into the promised land. And so I want to say to you, do not despise the small opportunities for service that God sends your way. Again, this is how God works, that when we are faithful with the little things, God promotes his followers to bigger things. That's what these principles are teaching. One of the ways I see this happening around our church is I see some of the guys that are out here mowing grass, and I know that some of the folks that are out here mowing grass, and they're helping spread pine straw and spraying our beds and doing all the sorts of stuff that, you know, general upkeep around the building, if it's not like a heavy skill set type of job, right, uh, that perhaps could be doing something much more grand, That some of the folks that are out there doing this, um, they're running really big businesses. Um, Some of them have millions and millions of dollars of assets that they manage for their company. Some of them have hundreds, some of them have thousands of workers working underneath them. Or perhaps back in the day when they were engaged before they retired, they had that kind of responsibility on them. And it's just wonderful to see them serving, even in the trivial things, even in the menial things, even the things that maybe the world might say, you know what, that's not, you're better, you're better than that. You're bigger than that. But a willingness to say, you know what, I'll do even the small things. Because, friends, what that points to is it points to character. and That's really what God's looking for. He's trying to wean out and figure out where, where's the person that has the character that I need to be able to then put in charge of bigger things. Friends, God is looking for men and women of character, and the way that he finds them, the way that he finds people to promote, is seeing how we respond to the small responsibilities of life. And if those things are beneath us, if those things seem trivial to us, if we despise them or we get into them and we do a rotten job with them, what we're telling God is that we don't have the character to be trusted when something really great comes along. I want to close this morning by just reading you one verse. It comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And I think Paul sums up very well everything we've talked about here today. Just hear these words from the Word of God. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for reminding us of just the small things that we do in life, Lord, how you are watching and how you are pleased by what you see. God, may we take the tasks that are before us, whether it be in our parenting, whether it be in our workplace, wherever, God, in our care of aging parents, whatever it might be, Lord. May we do it as unto you. God, may we see how you're working in our life. Perhaps we're, we're feeling passed over right now. Perhaps we're in a season, Lord, where we feel forgotten. May we know that, like Joseph, these seasons will come, but your promise still stands and that you will promote us if we are faithful. We thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts today. Speak to us with great clarity as we celebrate this time of communion. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.